Well, go ahead, please, and turn to John chapter 4. God has been so kind to us, I think, over the last two weeks where we've been really going outside of our main series of the book of John. If you're new to Sovereign Grace Church, we are in the process of of going through the Gospel of John, I think it's going to take us around 50 weeks, although it might not take us 52 because I've inserted a couple of extra ones. But for the last couple of weeks, we've been outside of the Gospel of John. And the Lord has been so kind to us, hasn't he? Looking a couple of weeks ago at Easter at the voices of Calvary and seeing Jesus' voice in great anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we saw him and we declared his majesty and worshipped his majesty as we just saw the depth of anguish that he went through for us. And then last week, we saw the depth of love that the Father has for us as we discussed and looked together at adoption and the glories of what it means to be adopted by God the Father. What a joy that was. Well, this week we continue our series on John. I've called this message, Jesus, a well and a shady lady. And I trust that we will encounter the Lord in John chapter 4 just like we did in the book of Mark and Galatians over the last two weeks. So let's look together from verse 1 through to the end of verse 15. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea. And departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did the sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your word afresh, we do so knowing that you are a Father who is eager to bless. Lord, our confidence in this moment of encountering you and meeting with you relies upon you alone. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and open the hearts of every individual in this room? Would we not just see, would we observe, would we be 
enthralled and infused and amazed as we see Jesus and as we see his greatness. Lord, open our eyes in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 4 in its entirety is absolutely packed to the brim with great teaching. This whole chapter, which is actually quite lengthy in nature, some 54 verses, it is absolutely jam-packed full with delight. A few weeks ago, Emma and I and our family, we went to the Shaw's house because it was Mary's birthday. And the star of the show was the piñata. At some point, this piñata bad boy came out. And I was excited about it myself, let alone the kids. This piñata came out and it was absolutely jam-packed full of sweets, full of lollies. And all the kids were trying to hit it, and it wasn't really going that well. It was like, I think, one fell out randomly at one point, but it wasn't very impressive. And so Alex, being the type of guy he is, got the biggest sort of rod, I can only describe it as a metal rod, that I've ever seen in my life, and swung this thing and smashed this piñata. And all of a sudden, then there were lollies all over the ground. The kids went absolutely crazy. Our kids in particular, our youngest in particular, which is no surprise, as she went running off into the garden. This was like Christmas all at once and birthdays, everything into one. And she's running around the garden and her small hands came back with more lollies than I've probably ever seen in my life. They were like stacked up in layers and she's running back to show me the joys of what she's collected, the delights of what has just been spread out in the garden. Well, in John chapter 4, I think the Apostle John is doing something very similar. It's as if he's running back to us to say, check this out. I've got so many things that I want to show you that I'm going to spend 54 verses telling you about them. Because my hands are full with delights and truths about the greatness of Jesus Christ. You see, in this chapter, we are reminded that salvation really is open to all. There is a wonderful theme that runs through the New Testament that is the truth that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's this wonderful inclusivism all the way through the New Testament that makes it clear that whoever you are, Gentile, Jew, slave, free, man or woman, young, old, it doesn't make any difference. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we're reminded afresh in this chapter of that through this shady lady. I mean, this is a bizarre scene. As you go through it, you realize it is a complete surprise that she would be saved. The reason why she is at the well at midday, at the sixth hour at noon, in the heat of the day, is because she was an outcast even in her own people. Everybody looked down on this woman. And yet in this chapter, we see the glorious truths of her salvation. The joy of her story. And so we're reminded that salvation really is open to all. We learn what it is to truly worship the Father. What it means to worship Him in spirit and in truth. For they are the worshippers that He is desiring. And so we learn about what what does that really mean? What does that look like for us as Christians? And we see afresh in this chapter just how powerful the gospel is. See, this lady gets saved... And she runs off into Sychar, as we'll see in a few weeks. And she starts preaching the gospel and telling people, you've got to come and see Jesus. He's the Messiah. And the whole town seems to start to get saved. There is revival that comes out, such as the power of the gospel, and such as the power of the preached word, as people go out telling people about Jesus and bringing it to him. This chapter, 
John has got his hands full with delights for us. And yet as he starts, there is one delight in particular that he wants to show us. There's one thing in in chapter 4, verses 1 through 15, that he wants to make very clear to us. And it's a truth about Jesus. It's this, that Jesus, the true life giver, is truly great. That's the thing that he wants to come running up to us in these 15 verses, that Jesus, the true life giver, is truly great. In chapters 1 and 3, John the Apostle's focus has been on John the Baptist, hasn't it? And so all the preaching up to this point has been done by John the Baptist. So John the Baptist has been telling us that Jesus really is the Lamb of God, that this is the one they've been waiting for, that this is the Messiah. Behold, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. Behold, this is him. John the Baptist then declares Jesus and how he is of superior origin, how Jesus preaches a superior sermon, how he has superior resources, and how he has a superior mission. Up until this point, all the preaching has been done by John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been declaring so far the greatness of Jesus Christ. Well, John the Apostle, when he gets to chapter 4, can't contain himself any longer. He wants some direct play with us. And so now he's not going to let John the Baptist preach. He wants to preach himself by reminding us of a great story. The story of Jesus, a well and a shady lady. And through that story, he wants to make clear to us that Jesus, the real life giver, the true life giver, is truly great. So that we'd be encouraged so that together we'd be enthused, and so that together we would be enthralled and amazed at just how great Jesus is. And so as John comes running up to us here in verse 1, there's really three points that I want us to understand from these 15 verses. Here's the first thing. Point one, Jesus, in his sovereignty, is always on time. As John seeks to unpack to us the greatness of Jesus, that's the first thing he wants us to understand from verses 1 through 4, that Jesus, in his sovereignty, is always on time. See, in chapter 3, by way of background, Jesus, along with his disciples, is, is teaching and baptizing the crowds at Anon, Nesalim. And he's having a great job. He's doing a great thing. We know he's doing a great thing because John the Baptist's disciples start kicking up a fuss. John the Baptist's disciples, as you remember, start to say to John, you know, what is up with this? All the crowds are leaving us, and all the crowds are going to Jesus. Hey, what's up with this? One thing is very clear. Jesus is being very successful at reaching out to people. Jesus is being very receptible and very good at talking to people about himself, talking to people about God, talking to people about what it is to be a disciple, and then correspondingly discipling them. And baptizing them. And yet in chapter 4 verse 1. Jesus along with his disciples. Decide that it is time to leave Judea in the south. And instead set their course to Galilee in the north. But the reason for that is. As you will note. A a little vague. Let's read it together. Verses 1 through 4. It says. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard. That Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. 
Now, at first glance, that does appear to be quite clear. The reason that Jesus left Judea, John tells us, is because he knew that the Pharisees knew that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John. It seems clear, and yet the more you dwell on these verses, and the more you start to meditate on the verses, you realize this isn't clear at all. This is actually very vague. There is a tangible vagueness about verses 1 through 4. Why is it that at this particular time, Jesus needed to move on? It's very vague. See, why, why did this matter to Jesus? First of all, why was this so important to Jesus that the Pharisees knew? Who cares? You're the king of kings. You can do what you like. So why did it even matter to Jesus that the Pharisees had found out about his success? I mean, perhaps it was a matter of timing. The Pharisees could have no doubt stirred up great trouble against Jesus and sought to get rid of Jesus. And Jesus knew only true well that this was not his time, that his hour of death had not come. And so perhaps Jesus, knowing that and understanding that, decides to now gather his disciples and move them on, knowing that this isn't the time yet. Maybe. Or perhaps he wanted to ensure that the Pharisees didn't discredit John. He was aware that his popularity meant that the Pharisees could potentially discredit John. See, they didn't like John. John the Baptist was not liked by the Pharisees. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because John is looking at them in the eyes and saying, you've got to repent and be baptized. That's very offensive to a Pharisee. A Pharisee didn't think that he needed to repent or be baptized at all. A Pharisee thought that through their own life and through their own living that they could earn salvation and earn acceptance from God all by themselves. But John the Baptist rocks up and says, no, you've got to repent and be baptized. And when they start to give him trouble, he looks at them in the eyes and says, you brood of vipers. It was quite offensive to them. And so the Pharisees would have no doubt wanted rid of John. And so perhaps Jesus knew that. Perhaps he knew that if he stayed and all of John's crowds went from John to him, that that could give them fuel to discredit John in some way. Maybe. Or perhaps Jesus' concern was that the Pharisees could discredit both movements. And so both could potentially be in trouble. The Pharisees believed that they had the way that this was the way of doing things. And so perhaps, as Jesus understands that there are two groups now that are baptizing, this could cause confusion to people. And so if the Pharisees basically kick up a fuss, both groups could be discredited as both groups could look like splinter groups of the true faith, which is Phariseeism. Maybe. But it seems a little vague, doesn't it? And why why is the time? I mean, you add into that then the words of verse 4. Look again. And he had to pass through Samaria. Um, He didn't. Humanly speaking, he didn't need to pass through Samaria. There was other ways. You go to the left, you go to the right. That's what most Jews would do. There were other ways to get to Galilee. You did not need to go through Samaria, human speaking. But I think the point that John is trying to make is, John is trying to point not to Jesus' humanity, John is trying to point to Jesus' divinity. See, divinely speaking, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had come to seek and save the lost. And so divinely speaking, Jesus Christ has an appointment to make. It is time to leave because the appointment has come. It is time to leave 
Because a woman who was chosen before the foundation of the earth is about to head towards a well in Sychar. And I've got to go meet her. I've got to go. I've got to go because she needs Jesus. She needs me. She needs to drink of the water of life. She needs salvation. And so I've got to go. So hang on then, John. Um, so why is he going? But is he going because of the Pharisees then? And if he's going because of the Pharisees, then what's that all about? Or is he going because in his divinity he's got an appointment to make? Do you see the problem? It's a little vague, isn't it? It seems to lack a clarity on what is the real ultimate reason why Jesus in this moment is leaving. Well, the more I've dwelt on these verses this week, the more I've come to a place of understanding that this is a purposeful vagueness. The point lies in the vagueness. See, John wants to show us something of the greatness of Jesus. He wants to show us something of how great Jesus really is. And so the point of verses 1 through 4 is that it comes on the back of chapter 3, verses 34 through 35. Look again. Chapter 3, verse 34 says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things, all things into his hand. They are breathtaking words, aren't they? They are packed with truth. For when Jesus speaks, Jesus speaks with the authority of God the Father. When Jesus speaks, he speaks with the authority of God because he is God. For in him the fullness of the Holy Spirit dwells and all things now, all things, all superiority, all divinity has now been given to him. All access to heaven has now been given to the Son by the Father. All things in heaven and earth have now been given into his hands. John Piper says it this way. Keep tracking with me. John Piper says the Father has given all things into his hand. So Jesus is the God sent God loved, God speaking, spirit permeated, all authoritative ruler of all things. Did you get that? Jesus. Jesus is all those things. Jesus Christ is God sent, God loved. He speaks as God. He is spirit permeated and he is all authoritative. All things, all sovereign things have been given into the hands of Jesus Christ. And so, why is it that Jesus decided to move on at this particular time? We don't know. It's vague. It's vague because it's complex. And it is in that complexity that the point lies. We don't know exactly why Jesus moved on. There seems to be multiple reasons that are actually taking place. But as you examine and meditate on those multiple reasons, what you realize is this. Jesus, in his sovereignty, is always on time. Don't you love it? What an unexpected place to find such a truth. But that is the point John is trying to make. That Jesus understands the complexities. There's no doubt thousands of reasons why at this point in time, the sovereign one of the world, the one who knows all things and spins all things and creates all things, has decided that in his sovereignty it is time to move on. But one thing is clear. Jesus in his sovereignty 
is always on time. Even in the complexities of life, overseeing and caring for myriads of people, he's never late. In the complexities of life, he's always in his divinity on time. Folks, aren't you glad that that can be said of your Savior? Aren't you glad that that can be said of the one who oversees and cares for your life in great minute detail? So I was thinking this week about life. And the truth is, life can be complex, can't it? There can be times in our lives when it's as if the sun is always shining down on us. And it's just great. You know, and every day, how's your life? It's great. God's good. He's amazing. You know, everything's just going great. How's work? It's great. How's your marriage? Unbelievable. How's the kids? Oh, they love Jesus. Everything's going great. Every day just seems to be absolutely great. The sun is always shining down on us. And then you go through seasons when that sun seems to be a little hidden and it, and it can be difficult. And you start going through trials and you think, Lord, you know, what's happening now? Life is so complex. And then you times those lives by the myriads of lives that Jesus is caring for, the complexities of those different situations. And I think when we put those things together, We can struggle sometimes, certainly I can, to understand God's timing in things. But actually, on occasions, if you're like me, I think we can doubt God's timing in some things. Lord, why now? I I can understand it if it was later on, but why now? Lord, how long? How long am I going to have to wait before you achieve this in my life? Because I don't know how long I can wait. Lord, are you watching? Lord, how long does this have to be until I get that? Oh, Lord, how long does it have to be until you change my life so that I no longer have to put it with this situation? Lord, are you involved in my life? Lord, why not now? I've been praying for this for years, so why not now? Why? You ever done that? Question God in his timing. Question God in his wisdom. We trust him, but we don't understand why now? How does this work? What's going on here? Maybe that's some of you right now. Maybe right now you're walking through a situation and you are struggling to trust God in his timing. Here's the message from verse 1 through 4. To you. Jesus, in his sovereignty, is always on time. He understands the complexities of your life. He does. And he's never late. Psalm 23, verse 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. How do we know that? We know that because it's a promise. And we know that because Jesus Christ, who hung on a cross, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But hung there because he loves you, is the one who now is pursuing you and hunting you down with goodness and mercy. And we know as he hunts you, that in his sovereignty, he's always on time. Whatever you are walking through, he's always on time. Never early, never late. He is God. And he knows your frame. And so Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things then, 
God works for the good of those who love him. Folks, that's true. So I want to encourage you, fear not. As you walk through trials, I know the temptation to question God in his timing. But understand this. Jesus, in his sovereignty, is always on time. And that is a truth that we need to imbibe and build into our lives. Because it changes lives. But that's not all that John wants us to see. As John the Apostle comes running up to us in his hand, trying to show us that Jesus, the true life giver, is truly great, he wants us to see two other things as well. And here's number two. Verses five through nine. Jesus, in his grace, is always relational. See, the main relationship in this story, not the only one, but the main one, is the relationship between Jesus and the shady lady. Jesus and the woman at the well in Samaria. And it's my hope that as we look at this, particularly this week and next week, that we will see just how relentlessly gracious Jesus is in this relationship. Because I want us to see that. John wants us to see Jesus' careful, relentless pursuit of this particular lady. And what he does to relentlessly pursue her is overwhelming. You see, the key to understanding, really, the significance and massiveness of what Jesus is doing here, this relentlessly gracious pursuit, is actually given to us in verse 9. So what it says in verse 9. It says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings, with Samaritans. Well, she's right. If you were the first original readers of this, you would be in this moment stepping back thinking, what's that all about? How on earth is this Jew drinking with a Samaritan woman? You see, Jews and Samaritans did not get on at all. And that is an understatement of what is really taking place between Jews and Samaritans. Jews and Samaritans have some very long history together. And in Leo Morris's wonderful commentary on John, he describes and gives us background to the situation between Jews and Samaritans, which we must understand if we're going to understand how incredible this situation is. This is what he says. He says, the reason for the hostility of the Jews to the Samaritans goes back a long way. When the Assyrians took Samaria captive in 721 BC, they deported large numbers of the inhabitants and replaced them with men from all over the empire who then intermarried with the Samaritans. These men brought with them their own gods and so just added Jehovah to their other worships. In time, their polytheism did disappear and they worshipped Jehovah alone, but their religion by that time did have some peculiarities. For example, they acknowledged as sacred scripture only the Pentateuch. They thus cut themselves off from the riches of the Psalms and the prophets and other books. Their religion was also marked by a pronounced bitterness towards the Jews. When the Jews returned from their exile in Babylon, the Samaritans, in a show of grace, offered to help them rebuild their temple. But the offer was refused. This naturally engendered bitterness all the more. One might have expected that the Jews would have appreciated the fact that the Samaritans worshipped the same God as they did. But it did not work out that way. 
The Samaritans refused then to worship in Jerusalem, preferring instead to build their own temple on Mount Gerizim around 400 BC. When this was burned by the Jews in 128 BC, relations between the two groups worsened. It's not a surprise. Occasions for friction were not lacking. And by New Testament times, a settled attitude of hostility had resulted. For many, many years, there had been major hostility between Jews and Samaritans. For many, many years, there had been a long-standing hatred between these two groups. Issues of ethnicity, issues of race, issues of religion had caused great division between the two groups. And so to the Jews, Samaritans were to be avoided. Samaritans were ceremonially unclean, they were racially impure, and they were religiously heretical. And so when Jews went to Galilee, they never went through Samaria, ever. Who wants to be with those stinking people? So they would go round. Even though it was longer, they would always go round because Samaria was to be avoided because they are people that we hate. But not so with Jesus. Jesus goes straight to them. Jesus, the Jew, goes straight through Samaria because he's got an appointment to make. And here's what happens then in verses 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy You know, to really feel the full force of what an incredible picture this is, I want to take you for a moment to Greenville, South Carolina in the 1950s. See, Greenville, South Carolina in the 1950s had a huge problem with racism. See, today, by the grace of God, that has been eradicated But in the 1950s, that was at full tilt. And so there came an incident where they built at Walgreens and Cressy's and Woolworths, they built outside these venues, not one but two fountains. This was only 60 years ago. One fountain had above it white. And one fountain had above it colored In 1950s Greenville, South Carolina, this was the norm. White people had nothing to do with black people. This was white supremacy at its maximus. This was white supremacy all over South Carolina. It was an offense and a disgusting thought to drink from the fountain of a black man. We'll come back then to Sikar and behold then the relentless relational grace of the Savior. For he did not need to go through Samaria. But he wanted to go through Samaria because he loves people. He wanted to become over all race barriers. For him, it wasn't about the color of someone's skin. 
For him, he has come to seek and save the lost. And he is on a journey then to save this woman at the well, who through which she will reach her entire village for Jesus. Jesus sits himself down then at a well. He sends his disciples off in grace. He wants his disciples to leave because he wants time with a woman that is beginning to come down the hill towards him. And then he takes a seat in broad daylight at a well that in effect would have a plaque above it saying, Colored. This white man is sitting by a colored well. Do you see it? It is staggering what is taking place. The original readers of this would be in shock. What what is he doing? What is he sitting there for? Why is he even in Samaria? This is disgusting. And then as the woman comes towards him and sits down with him, he asks her for a drink. A woman he knew was unclean, a woman who he knew was impure, a woman who was heretical as a Samaritan, and a woman who was clearly disreputable. She had already had five husbands. She's an adulteress. And even now, the individual she lives with is not her husband. And yet Jesus, in broad daylight, takes a seat. Why? Because he's going to save her soul. She is the one he came for. He has overcome all race barriers, all ethnicity barriers, all gender barriers, all sin barriers. He is pursuing in grace her. Behold then the relentless relational grace of the Savior. It's incredible, isn't it? What a Savior. That's the one we follow. We follow one who pursues people with relentless grace. See, all too quickly as I reflected on this chapter this week, I was reminded that, to be honest, I think so often these verses in particular are so often to, used even in evangelicals to teach people about how to evangelize. And you may have been on the receiving end of those types of messages, the importance of overcoming barriers, of being like Jesus, of ensuring that we reach out to people from different races, ensuring that we sit with people and we encounter people and we spend time with people. I've heard this passage used time and time again to teach us that. But in this context, evangelism is not what John is on about. He is not. So I'm not saying that you can't glean things from this of evangelism purpose. You can. But to be faithful to the text, this has nothing to do with evangelism. It has nothing to do with it at all. Because the point here that John is trying to make is we are not Jesus. We are not the pursuer. You and I are the woman. You and I in this context are the pursued. This text isn't about evangelism. This text is about grace. It is about the relational, relentless grace of the Savior. And that really does put a different perspective on things, doesn't it? See, if you're a Christian here today, then folks, I want to encourage you, don't just see, but observe. This is your story. You're the woman. I'm the woman. She is thirsty. She wants more in her life. Why do you think she's been married five times? Just for fun. It's because she thinks marriage is going to be the answer to her thirst. She thinks that if I can just get married to the right person, I will be fulfilled. 
I would feel a sense of belonging. This will work for me. But it never does. And yet in the midst of that, Jesus comes together. That's exactly what he did for you too. As we look around in the world for what's going to satisfy me, at the right time then, he pursues you. And in grace, he pulls up at a well alongside you and communicates to you the gospel which saves you. Do you see his relentless initiating grace? He overcomes all barriers. And he overcomes all barriers to save. We are not the pursuer. We're the pursued. And folks, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you're here today because in reality, the Savior's pursuing you. And at this moment, he's brought you to the well. See, I think all the way through the Bible, it's clear that there are two causes for doing what we do. There's a primary cause, which is our own decisions. Decisions that we make by our own free will. But there's also a secondary cause, which is a mystery to us, whereby God in his grace draws and wills things into being. Do you think this woman was in some way possessed to walk to the well this day? Of course not. She's just on her way to the well. This is what she does. It's her own free choice. And yet in some mysterious way behind her free choice is looking the sovereign hand of a merciful God. Because Jesus is coming from one angle and she is coming from another and he knows she's going to be there. And he knows she's going to be there. And he wants her to be there because in grace he is pursuing her for salvation. Maybe that's why you're here today. You think you've just come to keep your family company. Or you think you've just come because you saw a poster and seemed like it's something to do. Maybe. Or maybe God in his grace is pursuing you. And he's brought you here to the well because he wants to save you. Wouldn't that be just like him? That's how we started too, pursued by the Savior. Jesus, in his grace, is always relational. Number three then, verses 10 through 15. Jesus, in his divinity, is always superior. See, in verse 9, this lady is shocked. She is shocked that Jesus would want a drink from her, let alone talk to her, because she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew. But then in verses 10 and 11, this is what he says to her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She doesn't get it. Jesus has just offered her living water. Jesus has just offered her life and life in abundance. He has just offered her true salvation, true new birth. And yet, just like Nicodemus in chapter 2, she don't get it. Just like Nicodemus in chapter 2. Oh, uh, born again, great. Yeah, but... How do, I, how do I get back into my mother's womb? I don't get it. How's that going to work? He just doesn't get it. She's the same. Living water? Oh, great. Um, where's my bucket? What? She's blind. She just can't see what on earth is going on here. 
But she does, even in this moment, grasp something of Jesus Christ's claim to superiority. See, verse 12, she says this. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Listen, Jesus, Jacob, you know the one? Our ancestor, the hero of the faith? Are you saying you're better than him? Because he built this well, you know? With his own hands, with his own servants. He built this well. He drank from this well, as did his sons, as did his family, as did all his livestock. This is an incredible well. This is great water. Are you saying that you're better than him? Jesus responds, verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so, Mom, do I consider myself superior to Jacob? Um, yes. Yes, Mom. I do. I am superior to Jacob. For Jacob drew from a well that was limited and he offered a water that you'd be thirsty for the next day because it never truly quenches. But I offer you a water from a far superior well, a water that will truly satisfy. And so do I consider myself superior to Jacob, great though he was? Yes, I do. Because I have a superior water. See, Jesus in this moment is not claiming to be superior in an arrogant way. This is gracious superiority based upon a gracious superior water. I mean, look in verse 10 and 14 at the water that Jesus offers. There's three things that just scream to us about how great this water is. In verse 10, we see that this water is a gift from God. This water does not have to be earned. It does not have to be paid for. This water is a gift. This water is given to us by God. You cannot earn it. You cannot perform in a certain way so that it is a reward. No, it is a gift. Secondly, this water is living water. Quite literally, this is the water that we've all been longing for. For years, this woman has wanted to be satisfied. For years, she has sought that satisfaction in marriage. And for years, that satisfaction, at least five times, has been dashed. as she realizes, this is not enough. There must be more to life than this. And yet Jesus comes and says, I'll satisfy you. I'll satisfy you with living water. All the way through the Old Testament, living water was always connected to life and life in abundance. All the way through the Old Testament, living water was a signal of what Christ was going to bring. True life. So Jesus right now is saying to her, you are thirsty. I will quench that thirst. For through me, I will offer you forgiveness of your sin. Through me, I will justify you. Through me, I will redeem you. Through me, you can be adopted to the Father. I will offer you a water that will never make you thirsty again. I will offer you something that will quench what you're after. This water is a gift. This water is living water. And this water, as we see in verse 14, wells up into eternal life. This satisfaction that Jesus offers, this joy... It's not just temporary. 
wells up into eternity. As for all those who drink it, will not perish, but will have eternal life. Adopted not just for today, but adopted for eternity. And so, do I consider myself greater than Jacob? Superior to Jacob? Yes, ma'am, I I do. I, I am superior to Jacob. For he offered you a water that would always run out. But I'm offering you a water. I'm offering you a life that will never run out. You have a thirst. And woman, I have a water that alone can truly satisfy you. A few chapters on in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus is talking to us about the difference between himself and the devil. He says the thief, meaning the devil, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that in abundance. My friends, that is exactly why Jesus came. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to pursue people and to seek and save them. And that is exactly what he is doing here in John chapter 4 with this woman at the well, is it not? He is coming to seek and save her. He did not need to go through Samaria. He did not need to sit down at this well. He did not need to encounter this woman. And yet he did need to overarchingly because he wanted to save her. This is why she has come. This is why he has come. He has come to offer a living water that, the, that will truly quench and truly satisfy. And so he has arrived at this moment in time for her. But three years on from this moment, his body would thirst again. But three years on from this moment, his body would no longer be sitting by a well. His body would be hanging in a bloody mess on a cross as he cries out, I thirst. And yet he would hang there, thirsty, so that she could be forgiven of her sin, so that she could be redeemed, so that she could be justified so that heaven could be her home, so that she could be adopted, so that she could drink of the living water and know life and life in abundance through his death and resurrection. My friends, at Calvary, Jesus Christ was not only thirsty for this woman, he was thirsty for you. He was dying for you. Jesus, the true life giver, is truly great, isn't he? And aren't you glad that the Apostle John comes running up to us at the start of this chapter and shows us? Check it out. Jesus, in his sovereignty, is always on time. That's his greatness and his divinity. He's never a moment late, never a moment too early. His care is particular and distinct. In his sovereignty, he's always on time. In his grace, he is always relational. He's willing to overcome any barriers to save people. So whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Jesus, in his divinity, is always superior. He's greater than anybody who's ever walked the earth because Jesus is God. He died as the Son of God. And through his death and resurrection, he now offers a water that will well up into eternal life. A water that in and of itself is true life.
Folks, if you're here today then and you're a believer, I want to encourage you then, would Jesus Christ then and Jesus Christ alone be our chief delight? You know, we live in a city which I absolutely love. I love Sydney. But part of the reason why I love it is because it is all go, all the time. I, I like that. There's something attractive about, okay, let's do this. Let's have some fun. I like living my life full on all the time. I rest for about an hour and then I'm good to go for another three weeks. I mean, I, I, I just think it is good fun to be full on. And I like Sydney because it appeals to that. And yet I also think there's a great danger in this city. The danger is, in the midst of so much going on, we can lose sight of the only one that matters. We can lose sight of the greatest thing that has ever happened to us. We can lose sight of the greatest one who has ever walked the earth. And just like Mary and Martha then, we need to ensure that like Mary, we don't get distracted. But we keep coming back and realizing that the one that died in our place, the one who holds our hand, the one who is with us through the Spirit, he's great. He's incredible. Just as John tells us then, he must increase and we must decrease. That's the way of joy. And so would he truly, as we behold him in the book of John, become our chief delight? And yet if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I I feel a particular burden for you as we close. See, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I think in many ways this text finishes with a question to you. And that question really is this. What are you now going to do with the living water that Jesus Christ has just offered you? See, you're the woman. You're the woman. And so what are you going to do with the water you've just been offered? In verse 15, we read the woman's response. She says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Nope. Didn't get it. That doesn't make sense. What? She's still looking around for the bucket. She's like, Excellent. A living water. That sounds good. It'll save me coming back. Okay. Now, now you haven't understood what he's, what he's on about, have you? This is about salvation. This is about life and life in abundance. And maybe, maybe for you, you don't understand it yet. Well, come back next week then and hear about what happens to the lady next because that's going to help you. And if you've got questions about Christianity and you think, I, I just, I, what? I don't get it. We've all been there too. There are moments where you just think, I I just can't see it. Come and ask us questions. Talk to the people who brought you. We'd love to talk more about what Jesus is saying here. But maybe that isn't your response. Maybe verse 15 isn't your response. Maybe your verse 16 and 17 and 18. Maybe your response is one of, you know what? I am thirsty. And I want Jesus in my life. Folks, I want to encourage you then. John 3.16, just back one page, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you want a drink of the water that Jesus is offering you? Here's how. 
Believe. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. Believe that this really is the Son of God, that Jesus is God, that he is your king. And believe that he's your Savior, that he died for you, and that he is the only way for you to have life in abundance. When you believe in that way, according to Jesus, then you are saved. I urge you then, do that before you go home today. Put your faith in him. Make him your king and make him your savior. And you will be saved. If we can help you in that, then great. But you really don't need our help. Even as we close in prayer, even as we close in song, just cry out to God in your own mind, Lord, forgive me. I put my faith in you as my Lord and Savior. And you will be saved. And this water then, that never quenches, you'll start to taste it. And in that moment, you'll know what I mean. Let's pray. Well, Lord, how kind that you would pursue us. Lord, this woman's story is, in so many ways, our story. But we were never born in Samaria. So many dissimilarities between us and this woman. And yet, so many similarities. Lord, we were lost like this woman. We were not pursuing you like this woman. We were relationally cut off from you like this woman. And yet you pursued us. Lord, as we reflect on those truths, would we be freshly impacted by your profound love? Lord, your grace is enough. And it will always be enough. Because your grace never fails. Your grace always pursues. And your grace is always on time. Lord, I pray for those that don't know you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, as you sit with them in this moment at their well, would you open their eyes to behold what you are saying? Would you open their eyes to help them realize their own thirst? And would you open their eyes that they may see that you are the water? You are the one that satisfies You are the one who alone died in their place so that they may have life and life in abundance. And Lord, help them to respond. Jesus, would you be our chief delight for every eye in this room? Would our eyes go to you? You're the only one that matters. Our Savior and our King. And so with all glory and all praise, always going to you.